Hi, everyone. This is Jill Wagner with a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. As we mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I feel really honored to be talking with Holocaust survivor Leo Ullman. He was born in Amsterdam in July of 1939, which makes him one of the youngest Holocaust survivors and the few Holocaust survivors who are still living today, which is one of the reasons that it is so incredibly important to take the time to hear his story. Leo was just three years old when his family went into hiding in Amsterdam, that is the same city where another young Jewish person, Anne Frank, was also in hiding. Leo was raised by a Christian family as their own for 796 days. He has since written a book called 796 Days about that experience and his family's eventual escape to the United States. A big thank you as well to my friend Dana Arshin from the Holocaust Memorial and Tolerance Center of Nassau County for helping connect us to Leo and for helping preserve Leo's story and the stories of other survivors. Now, Leo's story is a bit different. He has said it is a story not of struggle, but of survival. And again, I feel so thankful that I'm able to talk to him today. Leo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So to begin with, I just want to go through a bit of your story. You were born in Amsterdam in 1939. Can you tell us a bit about what life was like for your family before the war? I can, though necessarily it's based on hearsay from my parents. Um, my mother came from a quite well-to-do family. They were in the diamond cutting business and uh, lived a very good life in Holland in a beautiful home right near the Rijksmuseum. They had cars and chauffeurs and help. Uh, my father was born and raised in Cologne, Germany. Uh, his mother was Dutch. Um, his father was uh, in the business of manufacturing silk uh, handkerchiefs. Um, in the meantime, Hitler had started um, taking over countries on the Eastern Front, as in Czechoslovakia and Austria. And um, Hitler had promised to Holland in 1939 that he would not attack Holland because Holland had been neutral during World War I and was expected to be neutral during any um, opening of a Western Front in Europe by Hitler. Notwithstanding all of that, um, Hitler opened up uh, a war against Holland by bombing the city of Rotterdam, which was then and now one of the most important cities in the world, and uh, bombed it to smithereens, uh, killing many tens of thousands, leaving homeless, many more tens of thousands, and giving an ultimatum to the Dutch government to surrender within days, or he would bomb Amsterdam, Utrecht, and take over Holland. Uh, during those early two couple of three days, um, some of my relatives had the chance to get out by going to the fishing ports, paying coins to fisher boats, uh, fisher boatmen, and getting uh, to London and presumably ultimately being able to get to the U.S. or Canada. My parents and I and one of my grandmothers uh, went to one of these fishing ports uh, hoping to get on a fishing boat and getting out of Holland. 
Uh, it was utter chaos. Uh, there were thousands of people. There were no boats. And in the meantime, I had an earache. My grandmother had a toothache or vice versa. And we decided to go back to our apartment in Amsterdam and uh, we'd survive and escape on another day. We went back to our apartment in Amsterdam. We did not have the chance to escape. And there we were uh, in an apartment in Amsterdam where we would spend literally several years uh, before having to go into hiding. At first, uh, life was tolerable, but Holland and specifically Amsterdam was taken over by a ruthless German governor appointed by Hitler and a close colleague of Hitler, uh, a man named Seiss Inquart, who had been the head of um, Austria and who was a roaring Semite. He took over and the decrees started coming, which made our lives more and more difficult. Uh, the first thing was that everybody who was Jewish had to come to Amsterdam. At that point, there were approximately 140,000 Jews in Holland um, out of a population of approximately 9 million persons. So the Jewish population was relatively small. It was also, and that was so important, um, the Jewish population was fully assimilated. My parents lived a complete normal life, uh, fully assimilated with everyone else in Amsterdam and in Holland. Uh, we were not singled out in any manner. Um, the first decree, as um, mentioned, is that all the Jews had to come to Amsterdam. Uh, so out of 140,000 Jews, 85,000 already lived in Amsterdam. 25,000 of those were engaged in the diamond business, which is what my grandfather on my mother's side did and obviously was quite successful. And um, soon we had in our apartment eight persons, where otherwise it was just my parents and myself, a great-grandmother, uh, a grandmother, uncle and aunt, uh, etc., suddenly uh, in our apartment. But we were okay. We got ID cards. Jews had special ID cards with a J on it. And all Jewish persons had to change their middle names. For uh, the women, it was Sarah. For the men, it was Simon. And they got special uh, ID cards. All Jews age six and over had to wear Jewish stars. They had to be sewn on their clothes. They couldn't just be pinned. And anybody dealing with Jews uh, was subject to penalties. In the meantime, we as Jews were not allowed to have cars or bicycles or motorbikes. We were not allowed to have um, to go to public schools. We were not allowed to shop in most shops. There had to be some special Jewish uh, shops with limited hours. We were not allowed to use the parks. We were not allowed to go to restaurants not allowed to go to theaters, 
not allowed to use public transportation. Um, but we were still alive. Um, things got more difficult. Um, there was a strike in 1941 by the Dutch Dock Workers Union, a socialist union, in support of the Jews. It was the only strike anywhere in Europe in support of the Jews. As a result of that strike, 450 young men, including leaders of the union, were um, taken, imprisoned, and uh, ultimately either killed or deported. Only one of those 450 survived. So the Germans were very, very brutal. And the Dutch life for Jews was very, very difficult. Um, but with fake ID cards, we were able to get some food. And again, we were alive. At a given moment, my mother's sister and her family uh, were picked up and taken to prison. Uh, my mother's sister's husband was active in the resistance, publishing an underground paper, and the Germans were anxious to capture them. They took them to a prison. My grandmother, for a while, was able to keep them in Holland uh, by bribing people with diamonds, um, but soon they were shipped off to uh, concentration camps. In the meantime, my father received a notice uh, to report uh, to the local German authorities uh, in preparation for being transferred to work camps in Germany. There were not at that time killing camps, at least not known to anybody. Um, they were work camps and with detailed lists of what people were to wear and bring to work camps. So my father and mother, being young and healthy, uh, decided that they would be prepared to go. And my father went to the train station. He got his call-up notice the same day as Margot Frank, uh, the sister of Anne Frank. And he went to the train station, and he saw that the Nazis were picking up not just healthy young people, but also elderly, invalids, babies, and they were all being pushed into cattle cars and shipped off. At that point, um, knowing what happened to my mother's sister and her family, and seeing what was happening on people being put in transports, my father made the decision, which was a very difficult decision for my mother and father, that they had to go into hiding. Whereas they had such a wonderful life before the war and were such uh, accomplished members of society, uh, suddenly they had to make a decision, which my mother called, uh, to live like rats, uh, to go underground and uh, to not be seen. That was very, very difficult of itself. Um, my mother was able to find a hiding place through her social work. Um, she had a social client who um, was um, um, incapacitated, and he had two daughters and a wife, 
and uh, a building on the main street of Amsterdam, or one of the main streets called the Centurban, the uh, beltway of Amsterdam, with a tram in the middle, a very busy street. And there they could rent the attic, uh, which had no heat or light, um, no electricity, uh, and was basically just one room with one window. Uh, they decided that that would be their hiding place. But what to do with Leo? I was three years old. Uh, I was active, and I could not be depended on to be silent. And they made the decision that they had to give me to the resistance in Holland. Um, one of my mother's sorority sisters, and a sorority in Holland was not like a college sorority here. Uh, it, it's a lifetime commitment. Uh, the people in my mother's sorority became their and our best friends for their lives and my life. Um, and my mother's sorority sister, a woman named Aleida Schott, who was a teacher of uh, Slavic languages, who lived nearby and was close to my mother, uh, she had a link to a minister in the city of Harlem, and that minister arranged for hiding places for Jewish kids. So at this point, you're about three, four years old. I have a daughter who's that age right now. I cannot imagine the difficulty that your parents must have faced in making that decision. Have they talked to you about that at all? Oh, yes. And, and it's a really, really difficult decision. I have a three-year-old grandchild also, and I, I just can't imagine having to make that decision. Uh, it's a decision that they felt was the only way that they had a chance of surviving and also to have me survive. Uh, it's a very difficult decision. Uh, my uh, father's parents were so angry about it, they refused to talk to my parents for years. Uh, they felt that that was just not the right thing to do. Um, but my parents were convinced it's the only chance that they had. Um, so I was first uh, placed with a young man who lived outside of Amsterdam with a new wife. And um, I was there fairly briefly because their marriage was falling apart, which obviously I didn't help. Right. And I was sent to a sort of orphanage on the north of Amsterdam on the other side of the river separating Amsterdam from the north. And um, I was in a sort of orphanage, and the father of this young man, uh, whose name we ultimately called Opa Schimmel, uh, his name was Hendrik Schimmel, he, the for, he was a former policeman, a retired policeman. He got a permit from the German authorities to go through the lines and go to northern Amsterdam and pick me up on a bicycle from this sort of orphanage and take me back to their apartment uh, in the western part of Amsterdam, the opposite side of where my parents were in hiding. He did not know who I was. He knew I was a Jewish kid. He didn't know who I was. I guess he sort of liked me because I was with his son briefly. 
And they took me in with the ultimate risk. Um, there were bounties paid by the Germans for anybody who betrayed a, uh, a Jewish uh, hidden person. Uh, there were uh, people partial to the Germans and the Nazis. Uh, it was extremely risky. It may well be that they did not have any idea how long the war would last, but they took this ultimate risk that they would be killed or sent to a concentration camp immediately where they would ultimately be killed. To take that risk is something that is really hard to understand, but there were very good people in Holland willing to take that risk. Um, And in my case... I lived with these people for, I called it 796 days. It was really, I think, to the 5th of May when Holland was ultimately liberated. Um, it was 797 days. But somebody <laughs> told me that sounded too much like a Bowen plane. And so I called it 796, at least for my book purposes. I'm speaking with Holocaust survivor Leo Ullman. More of our conversation after this quick break. All right, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors, starting with Athletic Greens. I have been using their AG1 supplement every morning. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water. It is easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day, knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You could visit athleticgreens.com slash Mo News to take advantage of this offer, and you can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Mo News, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. It also feels like we often talk about sleep studies and the importance of a good night's sleep. We've got some great news for Mo News listeners on one thing that could help. Bowl and Branch Bedding and Sheets is extending their special deal for Mo News listeners. They are offering all of you 15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code Mo News. That's M O N E W S. Bowl and Branch Sheets are made with 100% organic cotton. We literally spend a third of our lives in bed. So sheets are a very big deal. For a limited time, get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use that promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. So that's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS. Is there anything that you even remember about that time? Because you were so young. Do you have any distinct memories? No, you're you're right on. I, I really don't. My... First memories really were at the end of the war. Um, my war parents never had a camera or took pictures. I did live with a uh, an adopted daughter in a single room within that apartment. Her name was Tilly, and she was 17 years older than I. Um, and I don't remember very much about it. I went back, you know, a few years ago to visit that apartment and uh, the apartment where my parents lived, and that's part of a movie we later made. 
Um, but I honestly didn't remember it. And, you know, I don't have anybody to say, do you remember this or do you remember that? Because these war parents at a given moment weren't in my life. Right. So you call them, you call them your war parents. Did you know that they weren't your real parents? I did not. I did not. Um, before I was placed with them, my parents sort of uh, arranged to wean me away by uh, having me stay with sorority sisters and their families um, until I really got comfortable going to the Schimmels. And um, I didn't know they weren't my parents. It wasn't a concept to me at the time. Um, but, you know, for me, they were my parents. Uh, I lived with them. They fed me. They loved me. They took care of me. They were my parents, as far as I knew. And that went on for basically the entire war. Um, I was very lucky a couple of times because there were raids periodically. And the Germans would close down a block and go house to house and try to find Jewish uh, people who were in hiding. And my war father um, had an interest in a bar uh, sort of near the central station uh, where he had a girlfriend who was a German, um, a German woman who would alert us to when there would be a raid and who helped us get some food, which is also important. Uh, so when there would be a raid, they would ship me off to their son in the suburbs. And when the raids were over, I would come back. And that, of course, helped uh, an awful lot. Um, and that woman was my Aunt Paula, as far as I knew. That was Aunt Paula. At any rate, the war ended at a given moment. Uh, it was May 5th, 1940. It was very special. 1945. I just want to... I'm sorry, just... 1945, <laughs> for sure. And um, it was May 5th, and to this day, May 4th and 5th are celebrated in Holland as the Days of Liberation, and uh, uh, everything stops for five minutes or so on May 5th to honor, or May 4th to honor uh, the ending of the war and the people who died. Um it was May 5th, 1945, that uh, uh, the war ended in Amsterdam. Part of Holland in the south had been freed previously, but Amsterdam suffered through a brutal winter in 1944, and a lot of people died and there was no food. And there was no food in part because the Dutch queen, who had set up a government in London, um, decreed that the Dutch rail system was not allowed any longer to ship anything of value from Holland to Germany. Um, all the factories were dismantled and sent to Germany and so forth and so on. And the Dutch queen decided to stop that or to order the Dutch railroad system to stop. And the Germans in retribution stopped the shipment of any food to Holland. And in the meantime, there was a very severe winter. And again, tens of thousands of people died and suffered. How were you reunited eventually with your uh, parents? So on that um, 5th of uh, May, my war parents, of course, knew that 
my real parents, if they were alive, would come to get me. Um, but in the meantime, um, I demanded that they um, go outside and get me an orange hat. Uh, in Holland, uh, for special occasions, everybody puts out blankets, sheets, clothes, hats uh, in orange because uh, the Dutch uh, royalty is the House of Orange and the Dutch flag always has an orange banner on top of it. So everybody is very into orange and they certainly were then and I wanted to have an orange hat. So I know we waited for hours and hours uh, to finally get a hat. But within the next day or two days, I don't think it was that first day, um, my parents, uh, my real parents, learned from the sorority sister in the resistance where I was. And uh, they came to get me. My father's feet in the meantime had blown up to enormous size because he hadn't walked the entire war. Um, they looked awful. I mean, these people that uh, they may have weighed 70 pounds, if that, um, they just looked terrible. And, and um, they rang the doorbell, and it was a moment that my war mother knew was coming, of course, um, and said that they were my parents. And I was hanging on my war mother at the time, and I didn't know what was happening or what was going to happen. Um, and um, these people uh, said they were my real parents, and I just didn't know them. I didn't remember them. Um, and it was just very, very difficult. It was difficult for my parents, for real parents. It was difficult for my war parents. It's difficult for me. But over again a period of days, they weaned me away. They first took me to their hiding place, where they had uh, been subject to abject starvation. But they saved a can of beans for me that they hid under the floorboards in the uh, apartment where they hid. And they saved that for me, um, even though they starved. If they were able to get their son Leo, they would... Uh, have this special uh, meal. And so with great ceremony, they opened up this can of baked beans. And my reaction was, I hate baked beans. <laughs> and so they finished this can of beans with great ceremony and, and licked every drop. Um, and then we went back to my uh, war parents' house. So you know, it took days and, and maybe longer than that before I fully left. And in the meantime, when we went back, the whole street, the whole block on which we lived was celebrating at the apartment building in which we lived. And it turns out that even though my war parents tried to disguise the fact that they were hiding me and dyed my hair blonde so I wouldn't look like a Jewish kid, so forth, and never, basically never let me out. Um, it turns out everybody in the block knew. Wow. And nobody betrayed us. That was remarkable, truly remarkable. Um, and I went ultimately with my parents. 
uh, they were able to get a very nice home that had belonged to my mother's sister, who was able to get out during those first days of the war. And that was in the southern part of Amsterdam. It's a nice house. My father got his job back at the department store. He got uh, reparations for the time that he was out of work. And um, he got a little car. So you would think it would be a nice life that we had transitioned to in Holland. But most of my parents' friends, most of whom lived in that same area in the south where we lived, um, they had been shipped off and killed. The Dutch government uh, was in bad shape. The Dutch economy was a disaster. And so my parents, who had been wooed to do so, um, made the decision that they would ultimately leave and go to America. Before we talk about America, um, a couple of quick questions about what you were just mentioning. So you said it turned out that everybody on the block where you were living had known that that the family that your that, that your war family was hiding a, a young Jewish boy. What do you make of it that not one of them said anything? Because had anybody they they would have been paid money by the Germans for for ratting you out and and telling you. What do you make of it that everybody kept quiet? Uh, about the fact that you were there. What I make of it, and it's the name of a, a film that we made, it's there were good persons doing extraordinary deeds. Uh, it's just these were ordinary people, but they weren't ordinary. But they were ordinary people who did extraordinary deeds saving people. Um, and it wasn't just my war parents. There were many others. Uh, and even on that street, that was heroic. Um, so that's the message that I think is so important, that there were such good people doing these kind of deeds because they thought it was the right thing to do. And what about your parents? You mentioned they were in hiding as well, but I imagine their experience was a lot different from yours. What did they tell you about it? My parents really, really suffered. I mean, uh, to be in one room um, in an attic without heat or light and being together 24 hours a day. I, I don't know if you're married, but I mean, <laughs> to, to be with your wife 24 hours a day. And I, I've been married 63 years and we get through it, but I just can't imagine that. Um, it, it creates, it requires a level of trust that's so phenomenal. I, I don't know how they did that. And my brother and I, I have a brother who was born. Um, my wife figured out, I think, 10 or 11 months after the war ended in 1946, uh, he was born. And this was how my parents apparently celebrated the end of the war. Uh, <laughs> gave me a little brother uh, who was named after my war parents. His name was... Hendrik Jan Ullman. Hendrik was my war father's first name, and Jan was short for Janachje, which was my war mother's uh, first name. Um, so he was born in 46. In the meantime, my grandmother on my mother's side, who survived the war also, again through intermediaries uh, who placed her 
she incidentally wound up in a Catholic um, home uh, for for nuns, and uh, after the war, she was totally Catholic. Uh, she had to be reprogrammed to the family's Dutch uh, uh, background, but she went to America in 1946, wound up here in New York on 86th Street and 5th Avenue in uh, the Adams, which is a residential hotel, and she bought a home for us in Port Washington, uh, where we landed in 19, December 1947. So your, your family eventually made the decision to come to the United States. What do you remember, if anything, about getting here? I, we always hear about, especially immigrants, especially immigrants who are escaping persecution, kind of like kissing the ground as soon as they get here. Did you, your family have that type of moment? Oh, absolutely. We had it on the boat when we came in. We were on a converted liberty ship called the Westerdam. And um, we got to New York in the fog and rain, and suddenly there was the Statue of Liberty. We were all on deck, my little brother and I, and my mother and father, and the tears were streaming down my mother's face. And she said, um, we did it, we did it, we beat Hitler. Wow. And then once you got here, what was your life like? Did you, you know, a lot of Holocaust survivors that I've, I've read memoirs, they, a lot of them don't really talk about it right away. Was this something that you were open about? I mean, you obviously had a little bit of a different type of experience, but but what was it like when you got here? Two things. One is my parents did not talk about it. My parents were determined uh, to become fully assimilated. That was the motivating factor for them from the first day we landed. They just didn't want to be different anymore. And my mother joined every organization you could imagine in our town. And um, my father at first uh, had invested in a textile factory in Lawrence or North Andover, Massachusetts, and lost his money within a year. And he was able to get a job uh, and to join a cousin of my mother and uh, my mother's brother-in-law in a business that was a five and ten cent business in Port Washington, where we were, and in Manhasset, and then they opened up other stores. So we landed, and it was okay. Um, my mother placed me through my mother's sister in a private school uh, in Port Washington, right across from where we lived. Um, and one of the neighbors told her, you know, there's a public school right around the corner. Um, it's called the Main Street School in Port Washington. And so my mother took me there and took me to meet the principal. His name was Miss Merriman. She was a tall, very severe woman. And asked her, what's going to happen to my son? He doesn't speak a word of English. And Miss Merriman said, we didn't have Tessel or Essel or those kind of things in those days. Um, she said, well, for the first couple of weeks, the other kids will beat him up. But after that, it'll be okay. <laughs> and I think that's what happened. 
at any rate, I, I love the public schools. I, I, in those days, um, as kids, you could play outside all day and go anywhere and everywhere on your little bikes. It was very safe. And it was a, it was a wonderful early life. When did you find out what happened to so many of the other Jews in Europe? Um, do you remember learning about Auschwitz or hearing about concentration camps? And, and what did you think when you heard that? I honestly didn't know very much or anything of significance about it. And my brother and I always wanted my parents to tell their stories, and they wouldn't. Uh, until their 40th wedding anniversary, uh, which would have been in 1976. So at that time, we had been in America already 19 years or whatever. At that point, uh, they, my mother wrote her story. She had been in an uh, a adult education writing course, and she decided to write her story. Um, and that was cathartic for my parents. It completely opened them up and liberated them to talk about their experience. And they went on to talk at many schools. And my mother's story was different every time that she talked. My father's story was <laughs> absolutely uh, cut in stone. Um, but they went and talked to uh, many schools and to many organizations and churches um, what happened with them, which was significant to my life in a way, they gave up their Jewish religion. Um, in many cases, Jews who arrived in America uh, took the position that a Jewish God could not have uh, imposed on uh, his or her people uh, what happened to the Jews in World War II. In our case, it wasn't only that, it was the very fact that my, my mother's sister was extremely active in the local um, Jewish synagogue, and I think it was an idea of my father to get away uh, <laughs> from that. At any rate, we became Unitarians, and my parents loved it. Love that community. So you you wound up, you went to Andover, then you went to Harvard. Uh, you have a business degree, a law degree from Columbia. You started an extremely successful business. You've run marathons, Ironmans. So you've had quite an incredible life. Do you attribute any of it to, to what you went through in your earliest years? I don't think so. I think I've always felt I could survive, and maybe that comes from that. You know, when you do an Ironman, you, you think you're going to survive. You don't think you're going to win this thing or anything. <laughs> You've got to survive. Um, and um, in business, the same. I, I've always been uh, a risk taker, willing to take risks uh, of any sort. Um, and maybe that's a survival mentality that comes from the war. I, I don't know. I can't attribute anything else specifically to that. Your family fled anti-Semitism in Europe. When you came to the United States, even though your family wasn't 
it sounds like really practicing their Judaism. Did you face any anti-Semitism here, especially early on? You know, honestly, I didn't really know or feel that I was Jewish until I went to Andover. Um, certainly in Port Washington, it was never, never a factor, never a factor with the kids I played with, the people we associated with. At Andover, um, you know, it was a spiffy, spiffy prep school. And um, there were, I think, four Jews in our class out of a class of 240 or so. And um, I roomed with a Jewish kid, uh, which, again, in those days, I guess, was structured purposefully. Uh, we hated each other. We've since come to <laughs> We've since come to overcome that. Um, as a matter of fact, we Zoom once a month and on Sundays. But um, I didn't, you know, while there, I felt it. Uh, I heard some nasty comments. Um, and that was the first time. Um, thereafter, I was, you know, very much aware of the fact that I was Jewish. I was never uh, bar mitzvahed or anything of the sort, although I talked a few years ago at um, a local uh, synagogue, and I told the rabbi that I was not uh, bar mitzvahed, and he brought along something and wrapped me in cloths, and all of a sudden, <laughs> in five minutes, I think I was bar mitzvahed, but I'm not sure. Mazel tov, you're a man. <laughs> okay, so you're in the United States, obviously. Now, do you still keep in touch at all with your war parents, or did you? Yes, very, very much so. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, my war father died uh, in 1951, but when the war ended, he very much stayed in my life. Uh, they stayed very much in my life. They gave me their dog which was maybe so meaningful in terms of keeping the tie with them. I had an eye operation very early on, and he was there every day. Uh, he walked me to school most every day in Amsterdam. My war mother died in the 80s. I practiced law for many years uh, where my clients were almost all Dutch. And I would go back to Holland 10, 12 times a year. So I saw them often. Um, I was on my war mother's deathbed uh, when she died, and or just before she died. And I have always asked her, why, why would you take this risk? Why did you do that? And uh, her answer was always, because it's the right thing to do. Um, I asked her on her war bed if there was something I could get her, anything. And she said, a pocketbook. I like a pocketbook. <laughs> so I, I, I guess she never had a pocketbook. I don't know. I jumped in my car. I roared back to Amsterdam. I went to the best shopping street, to the most elegant store, and I bought the best Gucci, Gucci, Gucci pocketbook I could find. <laughs> And I gave it to her, and she stroked it a few times and never used it. She died shortly thereafter. I have been close 
to her family ever since. We, um, and to the other people who saved us, there was another policeman in Utrecht who placed many people in our family, and I've stayed close to both of those families. So I know you're also um, the director, or you were the director of the Anne Frank Center here in the United States. Uh, Anne Frank, of course, in hiding also in Amsterdam. I've heard you talk a little bit, though, about how her situation was very different than your own, if you could just kind of go into that. I believe that. And sadly enough, uh, people equate anybody who was Jewish in Holland and in hiding uh, to be the same, and it wasn't. Uh, Anne Frank was a German refugee. Uh, Her whole family were Jewish German refugees, Jewish slash Austrian refugees. Um, They lived in a separate area of Amsterdam. Most of them spoke just German, never learned Dutch. None of them became Dutch citizens. Uh, the Dutch government wouldn't wouldn't uh, tender citizenship to refugees. My father was never a Dutch uh, citizen, so um, they were different, and they looked down at the Dutch, uh, and the Dutch looked down at them. Uh, they did not mingle, especially. And Frank's father had a business in the heart of Amsterdam uh, with a back room where Anne and her family hid, and also, of course, others. So there were eight in the hiding. Uh, they were doomed. They did not have the support structure that I had, that my parents had. Um, they were just doomed. It was going to happen. And sadly enough, of course, it did happen. Somebody had to feed eight people. They made noise. There were robberies in the back room. Uh, it, it was just not to be. We did not have that. We had the support mechanism of people trying to keep us alive uh, and working at it constantly. So I think it was very different. I heard one of your stories where you said at one point there were five pages that were not included one in Anne Frank's diary yes. that you got a hold of. Tell us yeah. about it. You know my story better than I do. I, <laughs> I, I don't need. I have an outline lying here, but I don't need. At a given moment, um, the financial director of the Anne Frank House had been fired, and he came to me as the director of the U.S. Anne Frank uh, Foundation and asked for a job, and I made him the international director of the Anne Frank uh, organization here in the U.S. at that time. He remained very close uh, to Otto Frank, Anne's father, who in the meantime moved to Basel, remarried in the early 50s, and set up a foundation for the Anne Frank uh, movement. Um, And while this man was the financial director, he had a lot of uh, interaction with Otto Frank and became quite close to Otto Frank. At a given moment, this man uh, came to me and said that he had five pages of the Anne Frank diary, which had never seen the light of day. They were five pages, he said, that Otto Frank had removed from the diary Um, because uh, he felt that they were touchy. Uh, It was Anne Frank 
uh, criticizing her parents, both of them, and also um, Anne Frank dealing with her becoming a woman. And those are things that Otto apparently did not want the world to see. Um, so suddenly I get these five pages. I'd gone to law school and so forth. And I had no idea uh, what you do with when you get five pages of the Anne Frank diary. Um, the first thing I did is I went to the Morgan Library to find out what this might be worth and got an idea. I, I clearly, they were very valuable. I went to the Anne Frank house in Holland and asked if they would uh, buy these and or get them. Uh, they refused to deal with them. They said they were stolen. They didn't believe this story at all. And so uh, we proceeded to uh, make the contacts and get ready to sell these pages through an auction process. Um, in the meantime, the Dutch National War Documentation um, Service, which was part of the Dutch government, uh, decided to buy these. And they bought them for $300,000 and had them completely authenticated. Um, and since early 2000, those five pages have been part of the diary. If you buy it now, those pages are in it. Wow. I know that you also, um, you sponsored a an exhibit at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, and it's about propaganda. Why was that the message that you really wanted to focus on? Um, first of all, I, um, I was enormously impressed by the Holocaust Museum and their efforts to continue the story. I thought it was so important because uh, of several things. One is uh, Hitler, uh, through Goebbels, uh, was a genius at uh, public relations and public uh, publicity. They were able to get to children at the very earliest part of their lives and structure everything they were in contact with, every piece of information they would ever learn at school, anything that was ever on the radio and later on television, was all completely programmed and cleansed and, and um, structured so that the right message would go uh, that they wanted to propagate. And it's so amazing how structured and all-encompassing propaganda was in Germany. And the sad part of it is, and that was also part of the exhibit, they learned it from us. They learned from the U.S. how we demonized uh, the Germans in World War I. Um, you know, uh, Nazis looking, looking like apes taking off uh, uh, blonde women um, from America. I mean, it's, it's the very thing that, uh, that we created um, that they, uh, they brought to a degree that's just almost unfathomable. Uh, everything was covered by propaganda. You know, and yet, you know, here we are, it's 2023. 
uh, in the United States and around the world. And you're we're seeing this crazy resurgence of anti-Semitism and the numbers in terms of young people who either don't believe 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust or have, have never even really heard of the Holocaust. It's, it's frightening. What is your reaction to that? Whenever you see a resurgence of anti-Semitism, how, how does it make you feel? It's horrifying, needless to say. But it's also, for me, not as discomforting as it might otherwise be because the anti-Semitism that uh, resulted in the Holocaust was government-structured. It was governments doing this. It was governments creating the Kristallnacht. Uh, it was governments that created the, uh, uh, the concentration camps and so forth. That's not the case here. It's, it's uh, I won't say fringe, but it's, it's, it's not part of normal life. So I think it's so qualitatively and quantitatively different that the most important thing we can do is educate. And there was just an article in the public papers uh, about how few people in America know about the Holocaust, but even worse, even in Holland, that a majority of Holland uh, does not know about the Holocaust. The problem is to educate people on what happened. And that's what's so important about what NASA is doing. Uh, in its Holocaust Museum, where, you know, you take uh, school kids every day of the week and, and tell them the story. But again, sadly enough, it's pretty local to Long Island. Um, and do people in Kansas, mid-America, learn about the Holocaust? Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. Well, on that note, um, for anybody who is listening to this podcast, what would be the one thing you'd really want them to take away from your story? I guess uh, the one thing that I had mentioned earlier was good people doing extraordinary deeds. Um, and that is an overriding uh, concept, um, I think, for all of us uh, in terms of dealing with hatred. The other thing that I take away is the importance of education. That's, that's the opposite of the propaganda story. It's the importance of keeping that story alive, but it's also important to differentiate the Holocaust story from pure tolerance. When you talk about, um, you know, one thing I've studied a lot about the Holocaust just you know, in school, and I've been to some of the concentration camps. And one of the things that always stayed with me is uh, one of my teachers said, look, the system, the Nazi system was designed to kill all of the Jews. And anybody who has survived, any survivor that you talk to, it is through acts of just incredible bravery. Someone helped them somewhere along the way. They could not have possibly done it by themselves. Do you think when you look back on your life, just how many things had to go right for you to be where you are? Oh, absolutely. I, I bless uh, the Schimmels and the Hochebaums who saved my family every day. I mean, 
everything could have gone wrong. Imagine my parents in that attic, every footstep, every uh, motorized vehicle, anything happening outside could mean the end of their lives. I don't think that it's possible for us to just imagine how difficult that must be. And therefore, it's, it's so critical that we realize the horrors that can be created by uh, this idea of uh, the Holocaust and, and getting rid of the Jews, etc. I also think that, sadly enough, the U.S. was very complicit in all of this. And that's clear, of course, from uh, the movie that Mr. Burns has created, which is just so brilliant. Um, we, we kept uh, Germany from being able to get rid of the Jews. Uh, they didn't have to be systematically killed, um, but England didn't want them. America didn't want them. Um, and that's part of the story. All right. Well, we are very glad, uh, though, that you're here to tell us your story. Um, thank you so much for your time. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me and tolerating the time. A big thank you again to Leo Ullman for sharing his incredible story of survival as we mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I also want to thank Dana Arshin from the Holocaust Memorial and Tolerance Center of Nassau County for helping connect us to Leo and for helping preserve Leo's story and the stories of other survivors. As Ellie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winner, has said, whoever listens to a witness becomes a witness. So those who hear us, those who read us, must continue to bear witness for us. Which is why I also want to thank everyone who has made it this far in the podcast. That does it for this interview. You can catch Moshe and I every Monday through Friday on the Mo News Daily Podcast. Don't forget to follow Moshe on Instagram. That's at M-O-S-H-E-H. We'll have some clips from this interview and 24-7 news updates. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.